welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Mayu Ali, a Rohingya refugee, poet and author of Exodus. In 2017, he was forced to flee his home due to the violence perpetrated by the Myanmar military, in which his home and village were burnt down. He and his family escaped to Bangladesh, where he spent five years living in a refugee camp. He is now one of hundreds of thousands of Rohingya survivors haunted by stories of gang rape, mass killings and arson attacks that prompted the world's fastest exodus since the Rwanda genocide in 1994. His powerful and moving poetry collection, Exodus, depicts the true horror and despair the Rohingya have faced at the hands of the Myanmar military for decades. Here, Mayu Ali tells his story of evading military forces by crossing the border to the refugee camps of Bangladesh, recalls the harrowing stories of other refugees caught up in the military's genocidal campaign, and talks about the special significance his writing has held for him throughout his experiences. Let's start the conversation. So Mayu Ali, we just want to thank you for joining us today on Anna podcast. And it would be great if you could introduce yourself a little bit for our listeners so they can understand who you are and learn a little bit about you. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. So my name is Mayu Ali and yeah, I'm a Rohingya. I was born in Mongdo, uh, it's a township, border to Kossas Bazaar in Bangladesh. And I brought up in Mongdo and I finished my high school and also my university in Situ University. And I used to work for ACF, it's an NGO that worked for malnutrition in Northern Rakhine State in Myanmar. And I used to work for you know, ACF till the violence in August 2017. And during the violence, my home and village were abandoned. And yeah, my parents and I decided to stay to Bangladesh and yeah, along with my villagers and, and others were here. Um, so, Mayu Ali, when you talk about your, your village being burnt down and having to flee your home, was, was that the first experience you had that you were not safe as a Rohingya in Myanmar? Or was there, there was there things in your life before that that suggested that you didn't have the same rights as everybody else? Yeah, I mean, when it comes for safety for a Rohingya person, you know, it's a start from the day that you were born in Myanmar as a Rohingya, you know. Uh, I remember my grandfather used to tell me that when I was born and that there was no maternity healthcare in our village, in our area. And, and he, he called a traditional bath attendant. It's a Rohingya old lady. And yeah, so, and I was born at home, you know, without the nurse and other medical assistant. So yeah. And that is how life has started, you know, as a Rohingya. And, you know, Personally, I experienced the violence and the discrimination, especially after the violence in June 2012. Our life had changed from restriction to extermination, you know, after the violence in 2012. And yeah, and there were, you know, state sponsored persecution and, and operation, you know, again and again. There was the Nasaka operation and others operation, you know, that carries against the Rohingya population. I personally experienced 
the violence, the discrimination, and the hatred. And I also I I witness what has happened against my sibling, my parents, and my villagers and others members in my community. And yeah, even during the violence in November 2016, when there was attack against the border guard police headquarters, and at that time, you know, we also witnessed how our neighboring villages were abandoned, and we watched the fire and how the villages were. Fortunately, our village was not attacked during that violence. And yeah, I mean, in August 2017, everything was finished. And the land that where we run and where we started to walk and where our ancestors, grandparents, you know, forefathers, you know, have been living and for generations, you know, this became a brand new inferno, you know. Yeah. Like sometimes, you know, we see the news and we see people displaced and we see people fleeing their homes, but I don't think we capture what that involves. And when you're saying it there, like your whole family, your history, you've had to leave everything and just flee for your lives. How, what is that journey like? Is it a long journey? Is it a scary journey? What is involved? Yeah, I mean, you know, no one wants to leave their home, you know, unless your home is, uh, is not safe or or at the hand of the persecutors, you know. And yeah, so my parents and I were not decided first to flee the country. We evacuated to another village crossing a river and we waited a couple of nights there. And our village was already burned and we, we stayed in that village and took refuse and the villagers were providing to us and we managed to share somehow. And the next day, also, the, the Burmese militaries attacked the village where we were evacuated, and there was also fire. So we had no other option. So we decided to cross the Naf River to Bangladesh shore. And yeah, I mean, it was uh, like, uh, what can I say? Like, I see the dead people on the way, you know, the pregnant women and the children were crying, you know. God knows how many days, you know, the children were not eaten. And, just uh, somewhere, you know, dragging their bodies themselves and, and someone has even carried the bullet embedded inside their bodies, you know. And yeah, it was just the nightmare. Yeah, I can smell, you know, the fire, the blood, even at the border when I was waiting to cross the river. Yeah, I mean, everything you can see is just as the end of the wall, you know the fire, the blood, and all of your people whom you love and whom you have been living together, you know, all are became like the victim or the survivor of the genocide. And yeah, I mean, it's just uh, escaping from the dead, you know, and once you cross the river and yeah, the refugee like a start, you know, it's another world, it's another life. You have to adjust and you have to live. Yeah. And when I was crossing and I was in the middle of the uh, river and I was looking back again at my mother's land and, and all I see was the smoke and the fire, you know, people were waiting still on the shore to cross the river because there were just a few boots and yeah, the bootman carries uh, in town and yeah, they were also asked for money and yeah, they are also... I can see, you know, how the human traffickers targeted, you know, the women and the younger and the children. 
Yeah, it was just nightmare. And Mayu, like, obviously you are a writer and you have a, a beautiful talent. Uh, you mentioned about uh, going to Sitwe University. How did you how did you get into writing or how did uh, where did you find that in all of this? Where did that talent come from? Who helped to nurture that in you? Yeah, I mean, writing is, is a new thing, you know, like, I never seen or heard Rohingya poet or writer in the area where I was born. And, but in our Rohingya culture, we have like oral expression of like poetry during the religious festival, you know, like especially the religious leader, the imam, and they used to recite like some sort of uh, line, poetic line toward the faith that we believe, you know. And yeah, I just have like some atmosphere of this spoken expression uh, when I was young. And in my secondary school, and I got to learn some poetry in Burmese and in English, uh, only in our school curriculum. And yeah, and I happened to read about the poetry of like Reverend Janet Gore and Czech Spears and Long Philos and, and Christina Rossities and others. So, yeah, in my high school, and I, I started like to write something that I can, and, and I hide it in my notebook, and I didn't dare to share it to anyone because I, I don't know how, how much like they will appreciate or understand about the writing because I never see like none of my friends used to write, you know. So, and I, I, I just keep it and hide in it, uh, and yeah. So, and after the violence in June 2012, you know, as I say, like, life has changed. And before that violence, you know, all I see was, you know, the restriction, you know, the fine and and restriction to healthcare, to movement and restriction to freedom of expression. You know. And after the violence in June 2012, you know, and I see the fire and the burning and the killing and all others, you know echo persecution committed by the Burmese security forces against my community. And yeah, it was very disturbing, you know, when you woke up early in the morning and the first thing you hear is like your brother or your father or someone in your neighbor were arrested at night by the BGP or Nasaka and, and arrested, beaten, tortured in the custody or at least sent to the prison, you know. Yeah for only one reason, because of being Rohingya, you know. So that is how I start the morning there. So normally, like, when we are stressed or depressed and we share to our good friend or loved one, you know, but in our surrounding, the atmosphere is, like, just silent, you know. Everyone shares the same trauma, the same fear, and, yeah, just stay with their family inside their home, you know, and we fear to go outside because we are fear like we'll be arrested or be tortured, especially when you are educated, you know, you are targeted always and, and the security force can accuse you for anything, you know. And I hold my pen and I write it down that I'm not able to share to my friend and others, you know. So and at the end, it became a poetry or a, an essay or a, an, an article. So this is how, like, my writing journey has started. And gradually, and I came to learn that, you know, 
the world, the international community doesn't know what is exactly happening in Central Africa state, you know, because the Momo government uh, stopped the foreign-based journalists or media, you know, to enter, to monitor the scale of violence, you know, in Rakhine state. So, and I want to write in English and to bring the attention of the international community to understand what is happening exactly against my people. So, yeah, I mean, and on the other side, you know, I find hope and resilience on my writing. Like, I refuse in, in the world of writing. And I feel good and, yeah, and I feel powerful when I can write it. And, yeah, and especially when my government say that I am an illegal immigrant and I don't sit in Myanmar. And I find, like, holding your pen and writing your story, you know, is all you can do and it's worth it. And writing became my existence when my government doesn't recognize my existence, you know. And I find resilience and strength in my writing. I mean, the collection of poems, Exodus, is a beautiful piece of work. And I, I'm a huge fan of it. And I, I, I don't say that lightly. And as a teacher of literature, I loved it. And I think it was such a powerful piece of writing and the poems were moving when they were difficult and they were uncomfortable you know um but I feel I learned so much more about what people have been through than I ever have from reading a newspaper report or from watching you know a documentary I just I felt what people suffered but it it could not be easy to write those stories and a lot of the the poems are inspired by true events and stories that people shared with you um, and your own stories, I'm sure, too. Is it difficult or, or is it a release to actually say it out loud and just get it down on paper? But uh, I'm assuming it, it must be so difficult to relive those experiences, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's challenging, you know, like, yeah. So in Exodus, there are some uh, economic testimonies that, I write the poetry based on some true event on uh, some Rohingya like rape survivor. And yeah, in the refugee camp in Kosovo, Bangladesh. So I used to work for journalists and for human rights organizations. So I used to meet and interview the rape victim and, and other survivor. And yeah, I mean, it's just heartbreaking, you know, but those rape victim and survivor, you know, uh, how they have been through, you know, during the violence in August 2017. And yeah, I still remember Mantas Begon, one of the rape survivors. I think I can never forget her testimony of my life. Even I am in Canada right now, you know, very, very far, far away from the refugee camp, you know. Sometimes I, her, her story still echoes somewhere inside me, you know. It just, yeah, for the first time when I meet her, you know, I saw the mark of genocide on her body and I can smell it, you know. She was half bound on her head, her, you know, leg and her hand. And even she has no hair left on her head because it was bound on it. Yeah. 30 August 2017, the Burmese military force attacked her village called Tulatuli in northern Mongol township. And the villagers were targeted and all the villagers escaped toward the bank of the river. And men and some young uh, boys who could swim and they crossed the river 
and all the women, young girl and the children, and they remain on the bank of the river, you know. And they were the security force, the time of the war, surrounded them, and, and they started shooting them, you know, in the bright daylight. And, yeah, and they show some of the women and young women, and they took them back inside their home, and they read them there, and after raping them, and they left them there, setting their home on fire, you know. And Montas Begum and others, you know, they just managed to escape just to tell us their story, how they have been through, you know. And, yeah, it's, it's difficult, you know, like, especially, like, I myself, a genocide survivor, you know, I have been also through trauma, and I personally experienced the persecution, and, and when I interviewed them, and, yeah, and it also affects me, you know. And when I write, I sit to write again, and at that time, I want to recall their story, and it affects me again, you know. I have, like, some strong feeling, you know. See Rohingya's sister, my sister, it's Rohingya mother, you know. They have been through it a lot, and, yeah. And I push myself at that point, like, deep writing and holding pen, write their story as they are my sister and they are my mother, like my mother, and write on behalf of them and t- tell their story to the world. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's challenging, and but, yeah, someone should do that, so I did it. Are you able to tell us anything about Rohingya Gardens? Um. Yeah, so when I was in a uh, refugee camp in Bangladesh, so, you know, like, people were abusing, you know, finding shelter and finding food and, among them and some Rohingya youth who finished, you know, their secondary and high school in Myanmar. So they have a smartphone and they are on social media. And I see they want to write and some of them start writing and posting on social media, you know. And they write what they have been through and about their trauma and fear. And I just remember when I was young and sometimes I used to go to the store in our market. And in the store, I saw the onion inside a basket, you know. Some onion, you know, tried to sprout even inside the basket without the land or without the mud, you know. And in Bangladeshi Fuji camp, I just recall that scene. This Rohingya youth, they want to write something, even though they don't have a platform or a website or web page, and they want. So I just imagined my childhood memory, and, and I... I conducted a poetry workshop and I invited 20 of uh, Rohingya youth and yeah, on 21st March 2019 and, and my friend and I launched Art Garden Rohingya first on Facebook. Now we have a website, theartgardenrohingya.com. So today we have hundreds of uh, young Rohingya poets, including women, you know. So they write poetry in Rohingya, in Burmese and English as well. And some of them draw painting and sketch, you know. So, yeah, most of what they write is what they eyewitness and how they have been through when they were in Myanmar. So, for me, it's like adverse revolution, you know. And on the other hand, you know, at the heart of Rohingya suffering and, and we lost the touch with our culture and our literature. 
you know, Myanmar government first targeted our culture and language. And then they started killing us and, and burning our villages, you know. In 1964, the dictator, Wu Nguyen, you know, he stopped broadcasting Rohingya language through Burmese radio station. And the government imposed severe restrictions against us to practice our culture, tradition, and other religious festival in Myanmar. And yeah, so the longer we are, you know, persecuted and the more we lost touch with our culture and literature. I mean, this is another operation against my people in Myanmar. So through Art Garden and now the new generation of Rohingya have been trying to revive the lost culture and the literature and art. Yeah, I mean, there's still way to go, but yeah, now we have a generation, new generation. They want to revive culture, literature and art. You said um, earlier, nobody wants to leave their home. And hearing you describe the way you've been treated in your home country, I just wonder what your emotions are now in terms of that, when you've been treated so horrendously. But what are your feelings about the fact that your home country treats you that way? Yeah, I mean, Rohingya people have been living in, in Arkan, you know, since centuries. And, you know, Arkan was an independent kingdom before the Burmese dynasty has conquered, you know. And, yeah, I mean, when they conquered the Arkan kingdom and they first destroyed the mosque and others, historical landmark of Rohingya people, you know, and they designed a Buddhism in the land, you know, erasing the mosque and others' religious buildings, and they replaced uh, monasteries and pagodas, and, yeah, that is how it began in Arkan, and and yeah, so Rohingya belong to Myanmar, and yeah, so we were once officially recognized citizen, and we used to vote and be elected in Myanmar. There were Rohingyas member of parliament, you know, even in recently, like in 2010, general election in Myanmar, you know, the Rohingya MPs were elected. Even myself, I could vote, you know, it was the first time that I could vote been a Rohingya in my country, you know. And in 2015, and and they say that we are not eligible to vote or be elected in the country, you know. It's just the game of the power, you know. And, yeah, some government want us to vote, and, and when there is another government, and, and, yeah, they stop us, like, giving vote or elected in the country. And, yeah. And what is happening at the first February uh, last year in Myanmar is just heartbreaking, you know. Like from the refugee camp, you know, we see like how the Burmese, generous Burmese people, you know, are targeted, you know. They gone there, that kill like our parents and siblings and now fire in the head of the nation. You know? The Temodo, they used to kill or rape our sister and mother, you know, now they are killing and burning the British of the, you know, the general Burmese people in the country. And, and yeah, it's just the peril, you know, echo persecution, but yeah, I can see and happening. And like, maybe it's different, like the way the Temodo commit crime against 
different ethnic group or people or in different region or state in the country, but the nature of their crime is, is similar. You know, they kill the people and they shoot to death and they burn the village, you know, the mass slaughter and yeah, it's just heartbreaking and 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 how, I mean, obviously this might sound like an ignorant question because of the huge amount of Rohingya currently in, in refugee camps, but your initial story when you initially crossed, how were you received? What happened when you when you actually crossed the border? Yeah, so it's not river between Mongdo and Kosovo. So from my village to the border, so it takes like one day and one night to work, you know. So when we were playing, so, you know, uh, I think it was a rainy day and everywhere is muddy and, yeah. Like, I see elderly people were crawling, you know. When you were fleeing, with the people that you were with, you were with your family and the other people fleeing with you, would they have been from your village? Would you have known them? Would there have been strangers in your same situation? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, you can see like family, your relative, your villager, and also those Rohingya members that you never see before, you know, all are became victim. And like each one tried to run faster than another, you know, just to escape for life. And yeah, so even all group of people together, you know, children, women, men, pregnant women, you know, even the disabled, you know. No one is left. Everyone became the same. Everyone is trying to save for their life. Yeah. In terms of the process, when you actually got across the border, how are those camps already, how do they come into existence? What What is the process there? What do they decide? Do they split families up? Do they say families can all go together? How do they, how are you treated when you actually got to relative safety? Yeah, I mean, at the border, you know, even I see like the mother were looking for their kid, you know, the kids were crying for their parent, you know, they are also separation, you know, and yeah, no one know how many, you know, many were missing there and all they want is to cross the river, you know, and yeah, some left their kid and cross the river and some left their elderly people, elderly parents and cross the river, you know. And, and in the middle of the river, you know, there are also the boat. It's a rowing boat. It's not a big boat or ship, you know. It's a just rowing boat, you know. Like, uh, so the boatman asks money first, you know. Like those who have money and who managed to bring some money, so they pay. And some women, you know, and they just hand over their earring and their necklace, gold necklace. And I mean, they pay what they have. All they want is to cross the river, you know. So, and, yeah, there are also the stories of, you know, boot capsized in the middle of the river, you know, many have been drawn. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking scene, you know, when you see your loved one is floating dead on the river. And, you know, once you reach the shore in Bangladesh, I mean, your suffering doesn't end there, you know, I mean, crossing the river doesn't end your suffering. You became a refugee, you know, and I mean, in Myanmar, and you have lived for generations, and you are not recognized. 
in Bangladesh, you became a refugee, you know, you belong nowhere, you know, you have no one, you just live. And in the refugee camp, you know, again, it's just, you know, like apocalypse, you know, everyone was like trying to find, you can see thousands of people standing behind the street, the busy street, you know. There are also the stories of missing the children, you know, and the economy, the story like, uh, also there are the stories of, you know, robbery, you know, and also human trafficking as well. And yeah, so it's not easy to find a shelter, you know, within days or night. From the border, you have to walk to the Kutupalong refugee camp or somewhere that, you know, the local authority assigned to set up the shelters, you know. So there is another journey you know, from the shore, from the border to the place where you can set up your toppling shelter, you know. And yeah, on the way, yeah, also the kids were amazing, you know. They are also the icon of, you know, history of human trafficking, you know, and the local gang or the human traffickers, you know. They're just looking at the young girl and the kid when they find the chance, like they seem like that the kid and the parent are separated and they just, the kid disappear. And yeah, so once you have a, a shelter, I mean, it's not also easy. Like it was very beginning, you know, like it became the world largest resettlement, you know, like in few days, in few weeks, you know, and no one is ready. I mean, no one is ready there to provide you the shelter and food, you know, and yeah, so you have to wait to find food and to find a place to sleep. And I see thousands where sleeping, you know, at the petty field and beside the street and wherever they can find. Just even listening to you, just it is so true. It's a different kind of terror and a different kind of nightmare, it sounds like, from the one that people have left behind. And you spent almost five years, is that right? In, in the yeah. It is such a such a long time, and there's so many people still there with no no signs of leaving. And we see those fires ravaging the camps regularly. We see the flooding. We see the schools shut down, and things like trafficking. And I mean, it's not it's not a solution. And you know, this many years later, the international community surely should have a better solution. And obviously, with the military having now taken control of the country. There is no signs of Rohingya being able to go back home anytime soon with the the very military that committed genocide in charge now. So what do we need the international community to do? What What is needed so the Rohingya can finally go home and live their life with the dignity that they deserve? Yeah, I mean, now there is the question how the future of Myanmar will look like, you know. And yeah. It's another question. First, we used to think how the future of the Rohingya will look like. Not there is another question. And yeah, the international community, you know, they just say they support and they do something, but it's not enough, you know, what they have been doing since decades and six years. And, and what they say they are doing is not enough, you know. It's need something more stronger and something that has not been done before in terms of to crack down this situation, you know, and the policy of the Burmese Temuddha. Let's say about the case at the International Court of Justice, you know. It's not also happening, you know. And when there was the Rohingya case at the ICG, you know, and we we thought like 
the gate of justice for Rohingya is, has opened, you know. But this has been like years now even. And nothing is moving forward. And yeah. So the International Court of Justice should resolve and, you know, hold the perpetrator accountable for what they did against the Rohingya population in Myanmar and also what they have been doing since last February against the general people in the country. Mayuali, what, like, I'm trying to understand how you, how you are so strong, you know, because when I hear what you've been through and what you've survived and your strength is incredible, you know, to be able to sit here and tell your story and tell other people's story. And there's such a softness to you, you know, that, um, for what you've been through, I expect there to be a, an anger and a hardness and I don't see it. How have you survived this? How have you found the strength to keep going? Yeah, I mean, though I am far, far away from that hell, you know, and I still carry, you know, some sort of emotion, especially the story that I have heard from Rohingya women and children, you know, and it's still haunting me here where I am right now, you know. Sometimes it became like me up for me. And yeah, it's hard, you know, and especially like, even though I'm here, my parents, my sibling are still in the refugee camp in Kosovo's Bazaar, you know. And, and my friend and my younger sister are still inside Myanmar, you know, they are still at the risk of father's ex of genocide at the hand of the Myanmar military, you know. And like, what made me, you know, stand as strong is just some people. When I was crossing the river, and on the way to the river and in the refugee camp in Kosovo, I see, you know, several Rohingya women who have survived, you know, from persecution and from rape, gang rape, you know. Why they are alive today, even though they have been through that much and they survived and they can manage to tell their story to us. And I also see some Rohingya kids, you know, their parents were kids or mother at the hand of the military in Myanmar. And they were fleeing with their villagers, you know, like six, seven years old kid. And they they hold their young sibling on their lap and they carry them to the border and cross the river. You know, it's, it's just uh, their story, you know, their strength, even though they are, women or their kids, you know, and they have such resilience and they have something to tell me and they are, they are telling something to the world, you know. Yeah, it's something that always give me hope, that always make me strong and yeah, they are such real heroes, you know, even though they are young and they are women, even though, you know, their histories are not that much hard, you know, even though their history are not played on the biggest screen, you know. These are just the silent or hidden heroes. And yeah, I just salute them and I just salute those Rohingya kids and and those women who managed to survive and who managed to tell their stories to me, to others and to the whole world.
What can people do, Mayu Ali, like us, like just ordinary, everyday people? How can they help? Is there anything that people can do like to help? I mean, obviously they can donate to the camps. They can, you know, raise awareness in their own countries. But uh, is there any suggestions? I mean, I know people will be listening to this now and they will be so moved as we are listening to you. And, and I would like to be able to point to something that they can do today to help. Yeah, I mean, yeah, let's say uh, many people try to crack down this situation through the advocacy, you know, and doing advocacy, you know, through the United Nations, through the international community and powerful bodies and, you know, and others. And who knows how long it will take, you know. And on the other hand, you know, we are losing time, especially in terms of rebuilding the community, you know, like when the Temodo, you know, who, who take oath to protect your life and they hunt you again in a state, you know. At that time, you have, like, they target you and they hunt you, they kill you. So you have no other option, like, and it's not, uh, you can see, like, how many years and how long it will take to change their mind or, like, to change their policy, you know. So, and in terms of rebuilding the community, especially for the Rohingya, you know, it's very important. Like, yeah, I mean, works also focus on the advocacy and, and also bring in the perpetrator accountable for the crime they have committed, you know. And meanwhile, also, we should rebuild our community, empower the Rohingya youth, and also, you know, provide the education uh, to the Rohingya children in the refugee camp, you know. And, yeah, I mean, recently, what I have been hearing uh, in the refugee camp is also just inhuman, you know. The camp-based authority, you know, so stop the Rohingya school or the learning center, you know where the Rohingya teacher used to teach their children and their kids, you know. And, yeah, so, like, if you lost this generation, you know, yeah, I mean, this this new generation is the future of the Rohingya community, you know. If they are not educated, they are, like, losing their time, you know. It's, it's their high time to learn the education and to go to school, and, yeah, so... And I mean, Bangladesh government has been doing a lot for Rohingya community, especially the refugee community in Kosovo. So, and I request them just to unleash all the possibility for the Rohingya children to access to formal education, you know. And yeah, and they are just losing their time and just help them to learn education, to go to the school and and help them empower themselves and so that we can rebuild our community together and then we can go back home in our country again. Mahid, I I feel like I just, I'm so inspired by you, like just listening to your story. And I think you're playing an important role, you know, and I think the Rohingya community is so lucky to have someone of your strength. But it's, it's so hard to hear your story and to hear like just knowing how many more people are still there in those camps, still suffering. And I think you're right. I think education, because you need to be able to rebuild, as you say, your communities together and allowing access to education is a very basic thing. Is there is there anything 
that you wanted to to add that maybe we didn't bring up or that you wanted to mention? I know I know we're going to make you not make you. We're going to ask you to read a poem at the end because I really really want uh, to hear one. But is there anything else or any message or anything? Because I wouldn't want you to leave feeling you hadn't said everything you wanted to say. Um, so before I'm going to read the poem, I just want to tell about my new book that has been published in first week of March. Uh, it's my biography called Eurasia. So the first version is in French. So and then after that, we are going to publish in English internationally. So I'm just looking forward and yeah, to, I'm excited. And so it's my personal story. It's the story of a Rohingya survivor. And, and this morning I just uh, got an email of the cover and, and the book are imprinting now. And I feel like I am here in <laughs> the wear of the printers <laughs> from, from far away. And yeah, so I just want to hold it, you know, and to hold the weight, you know, is the weight of my 26 years of life in genocide in Myanmar and four years in the refugee camp. So it's crazy. But it's such a it's it's such a an achievement, you know, to to tell your story. It's not easy for anyone to tell their story and to be truthful and to especially when you experience what you've experienced. And I know for one, I, I, my French is not good enough to read it yet. I'm going to have to wait for the English version. <laughs> yeah, very soon, yeah. I think it's so brave how you share your story. And I, I know already I'm going to love it because I love how you put words together. I love what you do with language. So I'm, I'm going to look forward to, to reading that. So do you know which poem you're going to read? Are you going to read a new one or one from Exodus? Uh, it's... It's not from Exodus, it's a new one, and yeah, I wrote it, you know, when I heard first time, and when I see the theme of the uh, seized power of the country by Yuko on first February last year, so, and I see how my friend and my Burmese friend and my fellow Burmese boy, you know, have been targeted, and, you know, so... This poem is dedicated to all those Burmese people and who have been peacefully fighting, you know, standing against the injustice in the country. Yeah. The waves. The water of the Iyawati is longing for. It companion, the breeze. The river is searching for the shore. As long as its currents are flowing, we will keep clashing, glowing, and striving. As long as the waves are roaring, we will keep rising, growing, and marching. This is the beginning of the third wave of the struggle, to recover Mema's peace, to save our golden land once more. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A H N A H. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.